Welcome to the Big Ten or Big Ten Radio on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. And I'm uh, your co- or co-host today, Luke Fowler, here with my other hosts, or other co-hosts, Charlie Hunt and uh, Jen Snyder. We're all from the School of Public Service at Boise State. Um, and talking uh, exciting things today, starting with elections. Um, fortunately, uh, this ter- round of elections don't make any of us want to cry, so it's not as scary as previous episodes where we've talked about elections and election hey, speak results. speak for yourself. Yeah, you know, speak like. for yourself. That's right. <laughs> uh, I mean, they certainly weren't sad, unlike some other things, but we'll get into that more more often. So uh, I guess we're, we're starting with the local elections, right? Um, so exciting things coming out. Um, so I guess the two big things to talk about are, are the mayoral race and the uh, propositions. Where do y'all want to start, guys? I guess we'll start with uh, with the big one, the mayor's race. Uh, you know, this was anticipated to be a fairly close race. Uh, you know, a lot of candidates with some uh, prior experience. Mayor Beater obviously running for re-election again. Uh, and it turns out it was at least close enough that we need to have, uh, Boise needs to have a sort of a top two runoff in December. It's, if I'm not mistaken, the first time that that's, happened right that is in fact the first yeah. time that's happened yep. well and so while uh no candidate got the and so in boise you're required to get 50 percent of votes plus one to win and so while no candidate reached that threshold i wouldn't say the race was close um the lauren mclean uh was 46 percent to beat her 30 percent and nobody else was over 10 percent so i i would say i mean this race wasn't close um which is interesting because i don't think i mean i think everybody was expecting a runoff with a field this big but i thought i think the expectations was that the, those two top two candidates were going to be much much closer that's right and again with seven candidates in the race had there been fewer candidates this could have been a decisive uh victory for mclean depending on how those votes went so i think it's really uh, it's really interesting, and the fact that there was sort of quite a bit of uh, radio silence, if you will, from the Beater campaign after the um, results were announced suggests that they were not um, maybe expecting the outcome to be what it was. It took them some time to regroup and put out an announcement about how they were going to move forward. Yeah, and you referenced the other uh, uh, the other candidates, in, including uh, uh, Rebecca Arnold, who you know got I think around twelve ish percent. Um, uh, and, you know, Wayne Ritchie and some of the others. And so part of the big question going into this runoff is, you know, where are those voters going to go? You know, are, are they going to have a second choice? Uh, and, you know, where Mayor Beter and where, uh, where Councilwoman McLean are now, it really does seem like Beter is going to have to pick up a lot of those leftover voters uh, if he wants any chance of taking this home. Well, and I think I'm just going to channel Jackie here, who was quoted in a Statesman article today saying there's a good chance that those voters probably just won't show up. Right. right? We had record turnout, 40 percent voter turnout for a, a sort of off presidential election. That's pretty remarkable. And chances are we're going to see much lower numbers um, in this runoff uh, election happening December 3rd. Well, to, to build on that one, I, I read in the paper that this was record turnout. It was 10% higher than the last election. Now, we've all never had a runoff election in Boise, mm-hmm. so we have no idea what historically those numbers should look like. But what we know from national trends is people don't show up for runoff elections, um, even uh, even less so than what they would for normal local elections. But uh, I want to add a, another thing in here, or another kind of dimension to all this, is the propositions. Um, I would say what got people most excited of voting or, or turnout wasn't this election. It wasn't the mayoral election. Was voting on the propositions, and my 
my analysis, and y'all are welcome to to prove me wrong on this or, or debate me on it, is that all the voters showed up for the propositions, and Beater has been the face of the library and the stadium. And so all those voters that showed up to vote for that were decisively voting against him, and they're not going to show up for the next round. And so this is going to be a tight race. Well, that's, I mean, that's an interesting interpretation. I, I agree that I think the um, um, the initiatives were a referendum on this sort of um, city council and on this mayor. But folks who I think feel powerfully about those initiatives also feel powerfully about the incumbent. And so I think what you're going to see is really invested voters, sort of activist voters who care about the election are going to be the ones who show up. And I bet they have strong feelings about these these two candidates. Well, and I think it depends also on sort of how voters interpreted the the propositions. You know, we do this stuff for a living, and I have to say, like, I got the voter information guide, and the the, the wording of those are sort of confusing. It was like a vote on whether to vote on it, and uh, you know, that's that's not the kind of sort of referendum I've ever seen on a on a ballot before. So that was new to me. But I, you know, I wonder. You know, certainly the, the the way the results came out, which is that these were these propositions were basically strongly approved, right? So that now we will have a vote on these issues, and so I wonder, I do wonder how much the voters, you know, really sort of took that into account, or if it was, as Luke says, sort of a more explicit kind of rebuke on Beater. Well, so and uh, we have a, a colleague named Stephanie Witt that gave me her contra, like her analysis of it, which was. Uh, that she said she was standing in a uh, basically a gas station. She ever heard this person talk about? It. I was like, oh wait, I can't afford my rent. I can't afford this and that. It's all Beater's fault. Um, and so largely, she thinks that it's been a referendum on Beater and the economic state of Boise in general, um, and not just like the people that think the economic growth is good, but the people that are getting priced out of their homes and they're putting his face on it. So uh, I thought that was an interesting uh, kind of commentary or a uh, take on this that I, I hadn't previously thought about. Yeah, I think there are good critiques that could be made of Beter and his leadership. Um, I don't hear them articulated very often. I do think that it's very likely that he's just going to bear the brunt of sort of widespread anxiety and concern about growth and the rapid pace of cultural and economic change in Boise. Um, and that's, you know, I'm, I sort of have some compassion for that. I think that's unfortunate um, that he's been caught up on that. But I do think there are good conversations to be had about how we should govern Moving forward, and you know, I think if McLean is elected, that's it's really going to be incumbent upon her to figure out what that looks like and how she's going to do things differently because the conditions aren't going to change at all. She's going to have all the same challenges that Beater has had. Well, and throughout this election, you know, a lot of a lot of the talk has been about oh, what really is the difference between McLean and Beater? And there have been you know only to you know to my knowledge only a couple of ways in which they've really differentiated each other. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out when they are in sort of a one-on-one kind of situation where there aren't these other candidates uh, to turn to. And we should remind, we should say uh, that this runoff election will be on Tuesday, December third. So if uh, if you are interested in voting in that election, which we think you should vote in all elections, then uh, you should you should turn out to vote then. And there will be early voting for this election as well. We should note. 
Yeah, I'm really, and so to that point, like, I'm really interested to see what the candidates are going to do in the next 30 mm-hmm. days to try to differentiate themselves from each other. Because, you, like you said, they're, they're not very different. Um, and I don't think either did a good job of differentiating themselves from the other. Um, I think it's going to be incumbent on, on Beater to continue to try to differentiate himself because otherwise, the, all those voters are going to go to McLean. Yeah. And his, and his statement that he put out suggested that's exactly what he, what he plans to do. I think we should also point to the larger context of the Treasure Valley. And there were um, a number of elections that happened across the Treasure Valley and lots of change for mayors of like Star and Eagle. So I think every, really every city in the Valley right now is sort of facing these uh, pressures from voters to do things differently. And what that looks like, man, I think is anybody's guess. So uh, as we wrap up the section uh, or uh, segment, uh, to go back to, to Charlie, your comment earlier about the propositions and well, they're kind of confusing. Is there anything that we think that we can like surmise that we can infer from the election results on that? Or is it just like that the result, like the way they're written were too confusing and there's nothing really to, to understand about it? Or do y'all think there's something that we can learn um, about this? Does that make sense? I mean, generally, voters do tend to like to have a voice on a lot of issues, even if they're issues they don't necessarily know much about. And that's an understandable thing for voters to want. Um, at the same time, there's this sort of broader question of, well, is it vote? Is it up to voters to, to know about all of these issues? Or is this why we have representative government so that we can elect people to make these decisions for us? Um, and so, uh, so, yeah, I mean, those are sort of the questions that I'm thinking about in terms of, you know, should it be up to voters to make decisions about the library, or is that uh, something we want to delegate to our representatives? I'm just going to say, too, that I think when you have an electorate that's upset about things, how things are going in general, yeah. the likelihood of there being sort of charismatic mega issues that people attach onto, they're very highly symbolic, highly visual, and they want to make a statement about those, I think that's exactly what we saw here. Interesting, Absolutely. interesting. And so, uh, of course, uh, both of these situations are ongoing, so it'll be interesting to, to revisit them in the coming weeks and, and months and hopefully not years, um, <laughs> but to, to talk about them and see whether or not, uh, you know, how's, how's things are progressing from there. But uh, I think we are going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about elections outside of the Treasure Valley. We'll be right back. All right, we're back on Big Tent Radio on Radio Boise talking elections. Um, and so our last segment, we talked about what was going on in the Treasure Valley, but now let's talk about what's going on nationally. Um, and we have, uh, luckily for us, we have a national political expert uh, in the booth today. His name's Charlie Hunt. He's also a regular co-host. Charlie, what's going on around the world? Wow, I'm I'm blushing. Uh <laughs> Well, uh, quite a few things. There are, you know, comparatively, uh, you know, off-year elections at the at the you know st- uh, statewide level and the federal level. There aren't usually a ton of them in off years, but there were uh, just enough to generate a lot of interest this time around. So, uh, probably, you know, there were there were two really big stories coming out of different uh, different states this time around. Uh, one of them was Kentucky. Uh, you know one of the deepest red of red states in the country voted for Donald Trump by 30 some uh, by a 30 some point di- uh, differential uh, but elected this time around a new Democratic governor Andy Bashir who uh, notably is the son of, of uh, former Democratic governor Steve Bashir uh, but just barely edging out uh, Matt Bevin who uh, you know was the incumbent. Uh, a Republican and a very, very strong and vocal supporter of President Trump, even much more so than a lot of other red state uh, governors. Uh, you know, a lot of things at work here in terms of where the vote came from, but 
really high turnout um, and, you know, something that the Democrats are admittedly really happy about <laughs> that they were able to score such a victory uh, in such a in such a red state. And Charlie, I was uh, monitoring blue Twitter as all of this uh, these election results were coming in. I think we should say too that Bevin has asked for a not a recount but a reassessment. Of yeah, they the... don't apparently do recounts in Kentucky, which mm-hmm. maybe that's one thing that I actually learned this week is that that's mm-hmm. not a thing in Kentucky. Yeah, he's implied there's voter fraud and all sorts of irregularities, although he's given no that's specifics right. about that. But I think blue Twitter um, immediately Democratic Twitter uh, claimed that this was sort of a referendum on Trump. Trump and a, um, an example of what's to come, perhaps a blue wave in 2020, um, mm. that a state like Kentucky, which is also home to Mitch McConnell, I believe, leader of the Senate. Sure is. Um, that and it, he's up for re-election. And he's up it, for re-election. And Rand Paul, which is another Republican mm-hmm. big name. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. So um, I think they were saying, boy, this is a sign that things could really flip in 2020. What do you make of that? Well, I think... I think that's too broad a statement. I think there are parts of that. I think there are parts of that election that uh, do indicate some of these broader changes that have been happening over the past few years that have been mainly good for Democrats, particularly that were good for Democrats in uh, in the 2018 elections. So, you know, one trend we saw happening a lot in Kentucky is that in these urban and then in particularly these really suburban areas where Republicans have traditionally done really well. And this was the case in Virginia, too, which we'll get to in a minute. But these suburban areas really heavily switched away from Trump and towards away from the Republicans and towards uh, towards the Democrats. So this is something that we've seen across uh, the country and I think is something that Democrats are really that fueled a lot of their victories in 2018 and that Democrats are hoping will do the trick in 2020 in terms of uh, in terms of ousting the president. Uh, but as you say, there are some caveats here. So Bevin was a really, really unpopular governor. A lot of Republican uh, leaders in the state actually endorsed his Democratic opponent, uh, the governor-elect uh, Bashir. And so, uh, you know, there's a question of whether or not this is an explicit rebuke of Trump uh, or if this is just a rebuke of a very unpopular governor. And so, you know, it, it, Democrats maybe shouldn't let this go too far to their heads, but they may be smart to sort of identify these kind of demographic changes and see if they can replicate that in some other contexts. Yeah, I follow um, some coal miner blogs, believe it or not, because I study the coal industry. And I saw some really interesting analyses saying, absolutely, you should not interpret this as a sort of referendum on Trump. And that the Democrats in particular, those who are running for for president, have done very little to offer Mm -hmm. anything by way of uh, support to uh, failing coal communities, essentially. And so I think they attribute it very much to Bevin's personality, his refusal to support teachers, for example, mm-hmm. um, and they don't see this as sort of being a good uh, bellwether for Democrats in 2020. Well, and it's also worth noting, you know, Andy Bashir, uh, you know, hasn't hasn't been, you know, gotten quite as much attention as Bevin in the aftermath of this. But Bashir is no, you know, super liberal progressive or anything. You know, this isn't Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez running in Kentucky, <laughs> right? Um, and the same is true for a lot of other, you know, some of these other uh, red state governors who are Democrats like John Bell Edwards in Louisiana or even some of these senators like, you know, Doug Jones in Alabama. You know, those were good wins for the Democrats to get. But those guys are pretty conservative compared to the to other Democrats. So that's worth noting as well, I think. 
Uh, so, Charlie, there was uh, some elections in other states, including Virginia and Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So what are the elections in those states? I mean, they, they expand our understanding of this. I know uh, Democrats picked up some seats in Virginia. They right. really, everything as you would expect happened in Mississippi. Yes. I mean, so how does that expand our understanding of what we think is going on here? So starting with Mississippi, you know, that kind of went pretty much the way the way we thought. So, you know, a lot of people were comparing, for example, these Mississippi results where, um, you know, the, the Democratic uh, gubernatorial candidate did pretty well, but not really close to enough to win. Uh, they were similar results to uh, what uh, Mike Espy, the Senate candidate, uh, got last year when when he lost. Uh a lot of the, the a lot of what caused that was a sharp decrease in in black turnout in Mississippi. Mississippi has the the highest black population of anywhere in the country, but black turnout was very very low. Um, SB last year uh, was black and and helped drive a lot of that turnout. But as much as that suburban increase did also kind of happen in Mississippi, the black vote went very 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 down, and so uh, that was a problem for them. So I, I don't think there's a ton to interpret there. Virginia, on the other hand, the um, you know Democrats scored what we call a trifecta, um, otherwise known as unified government. So they now have the governor's mansion, they have the House, and they have the Senate. Um, so that has really, in addition to the sort of suburban trends we talked about, now Northern Virginia, essentially, you know, in the suburbs of D.C., is now almost entirely Democratic, which is a truly ridiculous change from just 10 years ago when it was almost fully Republican. Uh, So that's a huge trend, but also this has huge uh, policymaking implications. Now that they have unified control, um, you know, a lot of thing, different things can come up in the state legislature and, as you know, we can talk about, has pretty big implications for the redistricting process, which is going to happen uh, in 2020, 2021. Yeah, so uh, being from Mississippi, I was not at all surprised about those election results. I also say that uh, Jim Hood, the the, the attorney general, mm-hmm. uh, has a mullet, and I think that hurts him, but it is Mississippi, <laughs> so it might have helped him. Uh, but we also go back to uh, Virginia is the possibility, like, Mississippi is not a swing state, and it's never right. going to be a swing state. Right. Virginia has the potential to. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if Kentucky is or possibly, but it's certainly in one of the key areas regionally, right? Um, area voters in, in Ohio and Pennsylvania really shaped, shaped the last election. Mm-hmm. So I would say it's probably m- more meaningful for us to look at places like Virginia and like balance that higher um, than what sure. we see in Mississippi. I'm sure uh, some people on the Republican side would rather us look at states like Mississippi, but uh, it's going to be the swing states here, right, that, that are really going to define what happens in 2020. Certainly in terms of the presidential election, I mean, Virginia has gone blue pretty consistently since uh, Obama's first election. Uh, You know, I'm... I, I'm, like, I'm going to go out of limb and say I don't know that it qualifies as, a, as one of the main battleground states anymore. Uh, you know, I'll be eating my words, I'm sure, in a year when Trump wins it. But, uh, but you know, where they will look, like you said, is in sort of nearby places like Pennsylvania and Ohio. And then I think to the South, you know, Democrats are hoping to win back North Carolina after Hillary Clinton lost it in 2016. And so they'll be looking for, you know, some of those suburban areas outside Raleigh-Durham and some of those areas to see if they can make some of those really big gains, especially because... Because North Carolina has also been a uh, a state that's been subject to a lot of pretty controversial redistricting, and so they're hoping to make some gains there as well, in addition to winning it for the presidency. All right, good stuff. Um, I think we have to take another uh, quick break, and then we'll be back to to talk about something that's not elections, or at least partially not elections. We'll be back in just a minute. Hey, this is Michael Franti, and you're listening to Radio Boise, KRBX eighty nine point nine FM. All right, we're back on uh, 
Radio Boise or uh, Big Tent Radio on Radio Boise. Um, and so we're following up our, our conversations with elections with uh, maybe a little levity, a little something uh, less, well, serious. Uh, what we learned this week, though, I don't know if these are going to be serious lessons or not. I'm, I'm honestly kind of afraid about what Jen's going to say based on the look on her face. So, Jen, let's start with you. What did you learn this week? Oh, shoot. I, yeah, mine's not light at all. I mean, we started the show by saying that the local elections were not cause for sadness. Um, but I was thinking about how one of the election outcomes in the Treasure Valley was that John McGee was reelected to the Caldwell City Council. Or not reelected, elected. So you might remember that John McGee was a, a former state senator uh, here in Idaho who lost his job because he uh, got a a DUI, rammed a truck into a golf course or something like that. And then he also sexually assaulted an intern. And he was reelected. Voters granted him forgiveness. So uh, I don't know if that's something I learned. Um, I guess one of the things we were talking about, Luke, is that maybe in small places like Idaho, there are not a lot of people who are ready and willing to run. and so he had some experience, and that allowed voters to trust him again. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm always uh, shy, and I think there's some like broad assumption out there. That there's a lot of people that are are willing to take on the responsibilities of public office. They're mm-hmm. willing to put themselves out there. There's really not. Uh, and I remember uh, one time there was uh, it was many years ago. Uh, a, the governor of, of Mississippi Republic. Uh, um, appointed somebody to the, the Senate. I was talking to my dad about it. And he goes, why did he pick this guy? I was like, well, let's look through the list of people that are actually like on that list. And he, my dad was like, oh, there's there's tons of people. I was like, well, there's actually only three people on that list if you look through the qualifications. And so really when you're talking about qualifications and who's willing to put themselves out there in that position, because let's face it, being responsible for things is terrible, particularly when you're being <laughs> responsible for things and you're in the public eye. Like people don't want to do it. And so that's where we end up with people like this in, in public office, unfortunately. Yeah, although you I think in this case you could make arguments that the two folks running against him actually had good qualifications. So it's just it's interesting to me. And I was thinking, gosh, if I was that young intern who had been locked in that office with yeah. John McGee um, and I saw that he had been reelected successfully, I think I would have not woken up on Election Day and felt very happy about that. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think thinking about these things in terms of, you know, why why some people do or don't want to run for election. I mean, things like fundraising, you know, calling and begging for money. There are a lot of reasons why people don't want to don't want to run for office, but of course that's that's the way to, to change things and get things done. So uh, I I I'm gonna say I hope an uncontroversial thing that more people should run for office. Like I I, I think it's a good thing to do, and if, if you possibly have the time and the money and the and the dedication, then you know get out there. Yeah, and public trust is a special thing, and I think mm-hmm. you know we forget that, especially maybe in these times. Um, but it's something not to be taken lightly. No, I agree with that. Uh, and I'll definitely also agree with you that more people should run for office um, to create more, if nothing else, to put issues out there, to, to challenge. Uh, whether or not Beter runs the wins the mayoral election, I, I feel like this election is very good, that there's a, con- a contest that goes on there. I mean, this will definitely be a wake-up call to him. I also think it's a, a big reminder of McLean that w- once she gets into office, like this is not a guarantee for mm-hmm. her. Like She's going to have to earn the public trust every day right. um, and earn her re- re-election if she wants to keep that job. And so I think that's why contested elections are always so important in both primaries and in general elections. Mm-hmm. Speaking of contested elections, I know we weren't supposed to make it about elections, but my I learned this week, I, in fact, I learned right before we went to air that uh, Mike Bloomberg has filed 
to run for president. Get out of here. Uh, at least in Alabama, which I guess is the first state on his list. Maybe it's first in the alphabet, but he's fi- he's officially filed to run. How so. do we even make sense of that? That's still well, such a crowded field and he's entering so late. So is he running as a Democrat? Is that, that the assumption or... Uh, I, I just saw the headline, so I'm not 100% sure. Um, uh, uh, he, he is the kind of guy who could run as, an, as a Democrat or as an independent. I'm not sure why, uh, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure what niche he thinks he has in this race, but you know, I wasn't sure what niche Donald Trump had in the race too, and, and here we are. So I guess we'll, uh, I, I don't know. He, he, has, he has expressed, this, this sort of goes along with some recent stories we've been seeing about how you know, uh, along with the sort of the Bill Gates story from earlier this week of people seeing, especially billionaires, seeing Elizabeth Warren rising in the polls and Bernie Sanders continuing to do well and really being worried about, uh, I guess, their pocketbooks and these things like the wealth tax that, that Elizabeth Warren has proposed and maybe worrying that someone like Biden isn't going to win and that, that uh, they're worried it'll get the race will get dragged too far to the left. So who knows, you know? So something similar to that, which I learned right before we went on air from my colleague, Dr. Schneider over there, she's always teaching me things, is apparently Jeff Sessions is going to enter the Alabama Senate race, um, which is equally interesting for a whole lot of reasons. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, I mean, basically all of our comments have to do with like puzzlement about how certain people enter races and (laughs) then end up winning. Um, Yeah. Sessions, oh, my gosh, who really made an enemy of Trump in a lot of ways and will be running against Roy Moore who Trump has really supported. Um, so I think it's really interesting politics there. And, you know, here's the thing. I think Jeff Sessions would win. I, I honestly do. I think it's great that he jumps over because I think he's going to retake his seat. What is going to be interesting is what that means for the rest of Alabama politics, right? If people are like, if Jeff Sessions is out there, I guess, challenging Trump at every turn, our people are going to show up to vote for him and Trump at the same time. Like, what is that going to mean? I don't think we should assume that he would get elected and then challenge Trump. Like, if, if things if sort of uh, things stay the way they are, I'm sure quite sure he would fall in line. No, I, I mean, during the election, right? Because he's going to have to deal with challenges of oh, like, challenges oh, how like how aligned are you with Trump? Right. People are going to challenge him on that. And so, like, well, how's that going to shape the rest of this election? Right. Uh, as he tries to distance himself in some way and then bring himself closer like that's going to be a really weird dance for him to do yeah i mean as soon as he left the cabinet i mean trump uh, for uh, has sort of continued to like continue to trash him on twitter mm-hmm. and things like that and so and sessions was one of trump's earliest supporters it's a very weird situation so i'm interested to see how that plays yeah out i'm so that. excited <laughs> job security for us i guess right Jeez. yeah now that'll be a definitely a race for us to keep our uh, eyes on all right i think we have uh, another minute or two anything else that y'all learned this week you'd like to throw out to our uh, our listeners i'm just going to say that i think it's been a really intense week again with impeachment proceedings continuing and all of these other races happening and so the uptick on twitter of the number of cute dog videos is like through the roof and so i think whenever things get particularly intense we we rely on our friends in the animal kingdom to provide us with some some peace and comfort. I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. I'll I'll try and do my part and post more videos of yes, my please. own dog. Yeah. So Unfortunately, uh, our colleague, Dr. Kettler, is not here, but I happen to know to teach her students election about uh, a lesson about elections this week. She did a uh, an election with dog candidates to pick the cutest dog. Um, I believe somebody's uh, pet did not win. I'm not going to say who, but Charlie. <clears throat> you know, 
uh, it was rigged. <laughs> it was a rigged process. It was, uh, I, I suspect, foreign interference in that election. Uh, you know, I, is do I have any basis for that claim? No, but I'm going to make it anyway because Rody, my dog, was robbed. I mean, read the transcripts, people. There it is. Uh, I'm going to stay out of this one. I'm going to try to to be a moderate here and wait till for the the, the information to come out. So we'll hey, just wait for the recount. Charlie, can you post a picture of a uh, roadie on Big Tent Radio Twitter? Oh yeah, that can we, be arranged. Can Excellent. we? put out the entire presentation on our Twitter and we'll have Jackie do that so they can see all the candidates. We have our listeners weigh in on oh, what candidate. Can have a, a nice revote. We can certainly yeah. do it on Facebook on yes. Big Town Radio. So check us out there and right. uh, make sure you stay tuned. We will talk to you next week.